I want to start with getting you thinking about one other little homework assignment in addition to your study in the Gospel of John. You don't, don't start on it tonight, but you can begin to think about it. Uh, we were doing a series in Philippians recently, and I was challenged in preparation for it. Paul says in Philippians 1.21, For to me, many of you know this, it's a simple memory verse, isn't it? For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And one teacher challenged me. He said, take out a blank sheet of paper, write at the top, for to me, to live is, and draw a line, a blank. And then, in your quiet time with the Lord, in the next several weeks, maybe, begin to list underneath there really what goes in that blank in your life and mine besides Jesus Christ. We'll find that if we really look at our hearts that he, he isn't in that place in a lot of areas of our lives. And he wants to be, and he deserves to be. And I thought it was a real challenge for myself, so I'm inviting that challenge to others that I speak with. Paul came to that place, he was in his 60s most likely, he was later in his life when he came to that place where he could say, when Paul said it, he was saying it as truth, right? It's inspired. To me, to live is Christ. Now, he's in imprisonment. He's unjustly imprisoned. It's, a, it's an unjust, immoral situation. It's wrong what's happening to him. But he still says, my perspective on life is, to me, to live is Christ, even if it's costing me this. Now, for a lot of us, it's, you know, for me to live is my wife. For me to live is my children. For me to live is my grandchildren. For me to live is my job. For me to live is education. There are a lot, and none of those are bad things. But Christ may be you know, eight, nine, tenth, fifteenth, something, and He needs to be up here. It's an aspiration, really, for all of us. Maybe a lifelong one, but a worthy challenge. And certainly, the Gospel of John reminds us of this too. And so we we know you've been working in the Gospel of John, and in talking with the elders, we thought that we would continue. In the Gospel of John, and as I prayed about it and, and uh, talked to Jamel and, and to Malcolm, we, we thought that maybe to take an approach where we look at each of these segments, and I'm not sure, I didn't check to see if, how you divided it up, so it's not saying that anybody's wrong in how it's divided up, but I gave some segments to uh, Malcolm and he kindly sent them out to you so that we can bracket the segments of thought as it flows through at least the first six chapters of the book. Remember, uh, thought flow helps us to interpret the book rightly, to interpret the words rightly. That's We studied that, right, with hermeneutics, this, the science and art of understanding the meaning of the words. It's one thing to know the words. It's one thing to quote the words, but do you understand? Remember, the Ephesians, the uh, Ethiopian treasure in Acts chapter 8. Do you understand what you're reading? You're reading Isaiah 53. Do you understand it? No, I, I don't. Well, did it profit him until he understood? And, of course, Philip opened up. Now, I know you don't do a wanna here. You do one-way club, but, but that, that same concept, a wanna approved workers are not ashamed. That's what the wanna word letters mean coming out of 2 Timothy 2.15. And approved workers in 2 Timothy 2.15 are approved workers are not ashamed because they do what in 2 Timothy 2.15? They rightly handle the word of truth. So if we don't rightly handle the word of truth, we might be ashamed before the Lord at the Bema, right? That's important to him. And it needs to be important to us. And one of the ways that as we read and study the Word of God, part of what we're doing here will help us, I hope, to treasure and value the message of the Gospel of John even more than you already are. But also to understand a methodology that you can use in any book of the Bible. The methodology still works. 
It's the idea of searching for what is the primary subject of that segment. Now, there will be a lot of secondary and third uh, subjects that support that main subject. But, and I know, well, the subject of the Bible is Jesus Christ. Okay, so we set that one aside. Of course, Jesus Christ is in every, that, that isn't the answer we're looking for. We're looking for how he interacts and what happens to him and what we learn about him in these segments, right? But there's a subject, and then there's a complement. And the complement is what the writer says about the subject. <laughs> so he doesn't just present the subject. He presents the subject in that portion. And I think you've maybe found out in working through it, you won't get that usually with one reading. You won't get it usually with ten readings. So it takes multiple readings of that segment under the Lord with his help, his enlightenment. We have his Holy Spirit. But, beloved, that isn't going to hurt us to do that, right? Because 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that as we interact with the Word of God, a miracle happens. The Holy Spirit molds us, conforms us into Christ's image from one glory to another. A miracle takes place. So any interaction like this with the Word of God is going to be profitable, but also we're thinking about it in terms of evangelism because John is a great tool for evangelism. I personally, in, in my coming up in, as a young Christian and, and using the Scriptures, the Romans Road has been something that, that I have generally used and there's certain passages that you can use in Romans to lead someone to Christ. But there is a road in John, too, that really works well. And John can be very effective that way. So in evangelism, understanding the subject of a portion helps us to remember the central message. So if you're sharing the gospel with someone, a friend at school or at work or in your neighborhood or in your family, and you're trying to think of, they bring up a particular subject, and you think, where, where, where can I? Oh, yeah, I remember that. That's in segment three of, of the first chapter of Gospel of John. Yeah, that'll work. And will you turn with me to the Gospel of John, my friend? And you take him. You see? So this isn't just an exercise in um, theology or an exercise in religiosity. This is very practical. It's practical for our own sanctification, 2 Corinthians 3.18, and it's practical in evangelism, in sharing the gospel with others so they can be saved. I'm thankful you, you've got that list of names and you're using that technique to remember them. We, we really are. The things that are happening in our day, who are they ramping up? I can remember years ago, 2002, we talked about these things, but it, it is nothing like what's going on in the world today now. Are you ready? Are you ready to check out? Because the time is coming fast. And the world that our young people are growing up in, and I'm so glad they're learning the Word of God young and hopefully coming to the Lord young, is a totally different world than any of us have ever seen. We need to be praying for them. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be a Sunday school picnic. All right. So I gave you an example in the first segment there in John, in verses 1 through 18. You all probably looked at it that way as it's considered generally the prologue of the gospel. John has a prologue and he has an epilogue at the end in chapter 21. This isn't part of the, what we were looking at, but let me just say right now, you probably have already, since you're studying in John, where is the purpose clause in the Gospel of John? We're used to in the Western world seeing, I want the purpose clause right away. You know, the RE at the top of the memorandum. Tell me what the subject is, right? Uh, you know, you identify who it is, who it's going to, and RE, what's the subject? Give me the... But in the Eastern world, it's not like that. And I like that. The Eastern world thinks differently. They think in a spiral and cyclical kinds of ways. And it's more poetic in a lot of ways. We think linear. Everything's got to be in a certain line. A, B, C, D, working, building on each other. So where is the purpose clause? Don't you answer because I already I know you know. But some, maybe one of the young people. The purpose clause in the Gospel of John, where is it? Well, it's not in chapter 1. 
It's not in chapter 7. Chapter 20, right? The last two verses of chapter 20, which ends the main section of the narrative of John because chapter 21 is an epilogue. And so you've got the prologue, and then really in verse 19 of chapter 1 begins the narrative, the story. And it moves all the way to chapter 20, verse 19, and then he closes with verses, or is it 29, and then 30 and 31 at the end of chapter 20. And what is the reason? What is his purpose? Why did he write it? And believing you might... Good. And there you see a subject compliment again. See, right? The subject, believing that he's the son of God. And then the compliment is, by believing you have life (laughs) in his name. That's the whole purpose, he says, why I'm writing this. Now, you know, could he have put that in chapter 1? Sure. But he didn't. It's a methodology. It's a technique. And I like that about the Bible. I love the Word of God. Do you? I love the Word of God. And I love how God uses rich forms, literary forms, to communicate his truth. He didn't just give us a systematic theology. Have you ever read a systematic theology? I mean, it's great reading right before bedtime because it just puts me to sleep. So, I mean, just, you know, Roman numeral one, A, Roman numeral two, A, B, Roman numeral three, A, B, C. You just, you know, this kind of, no, God put it together in in living people (laughs) and how they interact with each other. I mean, look in the book of Isaiah, how rich that is and how the, the, the prophetic pronouncements he makes he could have done them he could have just listed them christology one two three four five that's how you do it in systematic theology but he's got them scattered throughout in chapter seven with ahab the the uh ahaz i should say the father of hezekiah and his rebellious nature and then in chapter nine and then chapter 11 and so forth and then chapter 60 and 62 wow almost want to preach on that tonight let your light shine jerusalem (laughs) okay so in verses 1 through 12 a, a simple way to think about the prologue is he came it's a subject he came and he came to give life now you could add a third he came to declare God, or to manifest, or to show God. That's in the verse 18. So, all of the words dealing with the, and he came, where he came from, eternity past, that he's the logos, which means he is the message. That's what the logos means. It's the word, but it's the word in the sense of communicating a message, which fits in with verse 18. He's declaring a message. He's, by his life, He's showing us God. And therefore, he has to be God. And by the way, that's something John's going to stress all the way through the Gospel of John. And you say, well, we all know that. No, you don't. And the world sure doesn't. We live in a world that that is still dealing with whether Jesus Christ is really the fullness of the Godhead bodily, even in among Christians. Even in seminaries, they're debating about whether Jesus really is God. And in fact, I have said that in certain churches, assemblies. And when I say it, I look out of the audience, and it's, I'm not talking about here, thankfully. But I'll say I look out of the audience, and I'm looking, I get this feedback like, are you sure? The look on the faces isn't, amen, we love for the fact that he's God. And he he had to be God to save us from our sins. It's just like, are you sure? I don't know, maybe you're going too far. And I think that may be, may be one of the primary issues in the tribulation period. So again, sharing the gospel with people, even if they don't believe before the tribulation starts, they can believe during the tribulation 
But if they believe, depending on the situation, because God's, if they've had, if they haven't loved the truth, there's a judgment that is spoken of. But the issue is going to be over the deity of Jesus Christ. You realize at least two-thirds, maybe more, of the world religions would not accept the Trinity? They'll talk about God. They'll have different names for God. And they'll talk about God, but they don't, Jesus Christ, they don't have a place for Him. And if they say, well, if you say Jesus is God and you say Father is God, well, now you're... You're not monotheistic anymore. You're, you have multiple gods. It's pantheism, isn't it? That's what they'll say. And that's what the saints, the tribulation saints, will be beheaded for, I think. Because the Lord says, you stood up for the truth of my name, Jesus. See? But that may even begin before the tribulation, beloved. <laughs> that may begin, we may be challenged whether we'll really hold to the deity of Jesus Christ. As he'll say in chapter 8, if I'm not Jehovah, you're going to die in your sins. So we're talking about eternity here. We're talking about where people are going to spend eternity has to do with the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. So he came. Any other comments or uh Ideas that you want to, before we move into the next segment, because I gave you that one in the text, so you've had time to think about it. He came out of eternity in time. He entered into time. God is above time, but he enters into time. Born, raised, and then eventually, 30 years of age, begins a public ministry for three and a half years. Crucified, died, buried, rose again the third day, ascended. Forty days later, the church began ten days after that. That's the essence of it. But he came to give life. That's verse 12, right? As many as received him. So how do you get that life? You receive him, and then he adds believing in him. As many as received him, to them he gave the right, the authority, the exousia, the authority to become what? God's children, his family. What Adam and Eve lost. What Satan lost. And all of his demonic hosts. They'll never be children of God. But we invite people through the gospel to become part of God's family. <laughs> That's big. And, and I'm looking out on part of God's family. <clears throat> Princes and princesses, if you will. Because he's a king. And as he says in Malachi, I'm a great king. And I agree with him. He is. He's a powerful king. He's a sovereign king. He's a compassionate king and a loving king and all those other things. Okay, so any other comments or suggestions on John 1 through 18? And, and to me, John, John's, did you notice in reading that? John is amazed at this. As he's right, I mean, he just, he's just, he's in awe. Now, John, don't forget, he's, you probably covered this when you began the Gospel of John. He's writing this Gospel many years after the other Gospels were written. That doesn't mean that we know that he, he knew what was in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We don't know for sure he ever read them. But those were written around, you know, between 50 and 60. Maybe say to 65 A.D. And John writes around 90 A.D., so some 30 years after the other synoptic Gospels were written. And so the Holy Spirit, working in John, he begins to think back. He's an eyewitness, and he's thinking back on the big picture. And there are things in the technique, the style he uses is totally different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And one of the things as we study a book of the Bible and why this idea of the subject complement can be helpful as a technique. When we study a book of the Bible, 
we tend to, our minds will tend to go to what's referred to as biblical theology. In other words, biblical theology is everything the Bible says about salvation. Boom, 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 boom. Everything the Bible says about Christology. Boom, boom. Everything the Bible says about justification. Boom, boom, boom. That's what we we use the term biblical theology. It's an approach to understanding various topics in the word of God. But when we study a book, the book stands on its own. John can be understood without Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Because John is writing it to an audience that they don't even have a New Testament yet. Just as Philippians stands on its own. You don't need Ephesians and Colossians to interpret it because now it, they can be helpful on certain words that Paul uses and certain ideas that he communicates, but the books stand alone because the Philippians, they got Philippians. We don't know that they got Ephesians, Colossians. And so when we want to properly understand the meaning, that's where the primary level of validation of our interpretation is to understand within the book itself. So within the 21 chapters of John, and in the case of the Gospel of John, in some books, there are a few verses that we we need to go outside the book to really say for sure in our interpretation. But in John, I think there isn't anything that's a problem that John itself interprets John. But it takes time in John to do that, right? And so it's easier sometimes to say, well, yeah, but over in Matthew, this happened. So I, that's, a, well, okay, that's, that's all right. That's not a wrong way to validate. But you're missing something in the flow of thought of John by jumping to Matthew because John is standing alone as John, okay? So he's presenting Messiah. And that's the next segment beginning in verse 19, where the narrative really begins. And you notice verse 19 begins just like the Gospel of Mark begins, right? Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 1, begins with John the Baptist. Matthew and Luke go a little further back before John the Baptist. But here, verse 19, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Okay, what is the subject of verses 19 to 34 then? Any of you get a chance to work on that some? 19 to 34. The testimony of John. That's what I would say too, David, yeah. In other words, you say, well, it's John the Baptist. Well, John the Baptist is presented, but it, it's not just about John the Baptist because, it, like, for example, John doesn't tell us how he's clothed. You know, Matthew, I think, is one that tells us that. He doesn't tell us, you know, what he eats. It's, it's not so much about John the Baptist. The focus is on what John the Baptist testifies to, right? And that testimony, before we get to the compliment, the testimony comes from two sources, right? You remember? John gives what, what his sources are? Uh, okay, which we would say Old Testament prophecy, right? In his case, it's Isaiah. Malachi 3.1 can also be used. So the whole book, the 17 books of the Old Testament called the prophets, right? Remember all of the Old Testament in terms of fives and twelves. Fives and twelves. You can think of the whole. So all 17 of the prophets bracketed by Isaiah and Malachi. And John, the forerunner, John the Baptist, is prophesied in Isaiah 40 and in Malachi 3. That's not just an accident. God did that. <laughs> it bookends in the whole prophetic. In other words, what God, what is God telling us by doing that? That his son, the great king, would be heralded by a forerunner. Now, most of us probably haven't grown up, maybe some of us have grown up in, in parts of the world where there's a king. But most of us haven't much, you know, grown up in America, you wouldn't have any identification with that. But 
if, if you live in a place where there's a king, there was, there's always a herald that goes ahead of him. The king doesn't just walk out without being proclaimed first, right? There's always a forerunner. There's always a herald. Here you, here you, here he comes. Long live the king. And then the king or queen come. You, they don't just walk out without being announced because of their greatness. And that's the same here. So he has a forerunner. So the first thing that John tells us is he is the fulfill. He says, you know what? When you want to think of me, I'm a voice. I'm not even a body. I'm just a voice. Isn't that a great way of self-effacement? You know, later he'll say in, in chapter 3, he must increase, I must decrease. I'm just a voice. And a voice in a wilderness. You know what? That's what we are. We live in a wilderness, don't we? Compared to read about heaven that's coming and you'll see that this earth is a wilderness compared to what's coming. The garden of God? <laughs> We're not in the garden of God. We're not in the millennium. Sorry. Not even close. And so John Announces. What's the second validation he uses for his testimony? <clears throat> really important one, too. Anybody remember? The Spirit? And how did... What about the Spirit? And who told him? What's, what's his source? The Father or the, or the Spirit, right? The, the Father speaking by the Holy Spirit. He says... Uh, I did not, verse 31, I did not know him, but that he should be revealed, therefore I came baptizing. Um, yeah, sorry, 33. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, with a voice apparently, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. By the way, another sideline. <laughs> Baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Don't just rush over that. If you're in the first century Judaism, under the old covenant still, when this is happening, baptizing with the Holy Spirit, what does that link to? Is that in the Mosaic covenant anywhere? Is that, is that a result of the Mosaic law? The result of the Davidic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. What, how, what do we when you immediately we say baptized with the Holy Spirit? What does someone who understands the Old Testament think of? Two passages, right? Jeremiah thirty-one, Ezekiel thirty-six, the New Covenant. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is a characteristic of the New Covenant. So indirectly, he is announcing the New Covenant also. And it's in perfect line with the Old Testament. He's not setting aside the Old Testament. He's fulfilling it. That's exactly what the Lord says in the Sermon on the Mount. And that's what we want to be careful about when we share the gospel with people in this world that don't understand the difference between the New Testament and the Old. And especially we have opportunity with Jewish people to show that, the, that we, they don't have to set aside their Judaism. Their Judaism is rooted, hopefully, in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is from God. And the New Testament is a fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament. They're all linked together, see. So we don't isolate either one of them from each other. So what's the complement? So we got the subject, the testimony of John. What does the writer say about the testimony of John? That Jesus is the Son of God, right? That's what he ends it in verse 34 with that. I have seen and testified that this Jesus of Nazareth that I just baptized with water and I didn't know him, even though he's my cousin. I didn't know him until the Spirit descended on him and the Father told me that when I saw the Spirit descended on him that I would know that this is the one. That's the only way I know to identify him. But now I know. And so this is 
God in a human body. Right? If he's a son of God, he's God. He's got every attribute of God. He has all the authority of God. Beloved, this is one of the primary subjects of the whole Gospel of John. That you'd believe that he is the Son of God. And that believing you'd have life in his name. And if you don't believe he's the Son of God, you may not have life in his name. It's that critical. Where are you going to spend eternity? Contingent upon, hinges upon what think ye of Jesus. Okay, so in this sense, John uses kind of the last verse, verse 34 in this segment, to give both the subject and the compliment all in one verse. Boy, that's neat, huh? But don't think he does that every time because he doesn't. He uses different techniques and weaves it in. And, and I love that about the Word of God. All right, any other questions, comments, suggestions on that segment? And you see how those segments are different. You see how the subject significantly changes between verses 1 to 18, talking about how the Lord comes out of eternity. He's the light and the life of men. And and he makes mention of John, actually, John the Baptist, and that he came to testify to him. And all of that sets up really the whole gospel. And then in verse 19, suddenly he says, now let me tell you about John the Baptist. And here's how it worked out in detail. Right? All right, then the next segment in verse 35, we kind of, we kind of set, go ahead. That's right. And incidentally, I was going to wait till we got to John 5, but I'll link to it now since you bring that up. That, to me, helps us. When you studied John 5, did you try to guess what feast it was? <laughs> you know, there's a lot. Of, because John, all through the gospel, he lists every other feast. He says tabernacles. He says dedication, even Hanukkah. He says each and, and each of the three Passovers, and he leaves out one Passover because we know there are four Passovers, and so some believe, well, John 5 must be a Passover, but if it is, why does he mention Passover the other two times and not mention it there? He just says, a feast of the Jews. Now, it could be Purim. It could be a, a lot of different feasts other than the three main ones, you know. It was a Sabbath. That's the emphasis in John 5, that it was a Sabbath, not what feast it is. We'll get to that when we get to John 5, probably on Saturday. But one of the ways for me, why I have struggled with this, to where does John 5 fit in? Because John 1 through 4 clearly deals with things in the early part of his ministry. Actually, all, all four chapters of John 1 through 4 occur between Mark one twelve and Mark one thirteen or one thirteen and one fourteen, all of them fit right in. And so, the early stages. Well, does John five fit with that group, or does it after that? And because then, you, then he goes to John six, and suddenly he goes two years down the road to Passover twenty nine A.D. a year before the cross. Well, that to me is what you mentioned about John the Baptist being mentioned there as a viable witness, one of the five porches, one of the five witnesses to the truth of the identity of the Lord, tells me that John 5 goes with this section because what he says word for word in John 5 is the same thing he says in verse 19 of chapter 1. Those who He answered those who were sent to him. 
And that's what he says in John. See, it's a little clue the Holy Spirit gives us. But you say, well, then that brackets 119 all the way through John. John 5 does go with this section, 1 through 4. Now, that's not that important to know exactly because the Holy Spirit would give us the date and the feast if we needed to know it. But if it does fit in with John 1 through 4, it's more than likely tabernacles, maybe. I mean, uh, Pentecost, then it being a feast just... 50 days after Passover, right? And it, that fits in well, but we'll talk about that when we get there. But good point, Michael. Good. All right. Yeah, so, all right, go ahead, Michael. I was just going to say, any significance of verse 7 that all men through him might believe? I mean, I, I just never noticed that. I, that's pretty. Yes. Which would be, primarily, you could say the people in his lifetime would be Judeans, but it wouldn't, he says all, so it would be through the word, through, God, through John's gospel and the other gospel records. It goes to everybody, but not with the same impact, as Michael's saying, as it did then. John, it's hard to estimate the impact that John had. I mean, they thought he was Elijah, some. And, it, and he was, in one sense, right, according to the Lord. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's pretty significant, I think. It is. Yeah. And, and as we'll see in chapter 3, after the Nicodemus story, we have one of the most significant testimonies to the Lord from, again, John the Baptist that is often overlooked because it doesn't fit in. It's unique to the Gospel of John. So we'll see that as we get to it. Good points, brethren. Good, good. All right. That's a good point. Andreas is bringing it up here when when they the Pharisees sent. Uh, the, the priests and Levites uh, were sent to, Who are you? In verse 19, verse 20, he confessed, I'm not the Christ. Are you Elijah? I am not. Okay. The Lord Jesus says, as they're coming down the Mount of Transfiguration, for those who could can receive it, he is Elijah. But he doesn't see himself as that, which tells me a lot about the character of John the Baptist. Because he could... He could have thought of himself that way. Of course, I'm Elijah. Don't, don't you see? I'm wearing a, the, the same kind of clothing Elijah wore. I mean, and I've got the big mane of a beard and so forth. And I'm a Nazarite from birth. Don't, can't you? I'm not Elijah. In John the Baptist's mind. But the Lord Jesus says, yes, he was the Elijah that was prophesied in Malachi. But he isn't the total fulfillment because there'll be another Elijah-like before the second coming of the Lord, too, see. And that's revealed to us in Malachi 4. Okay? So does that get... It's not exactly the answer maybe you were hoping for, but that's kind of how I would answer. Yeah, I think John the Baptist saying, no, I'm not Elijah. I'm not going to elevate myself to that position. But God elevates him to that position. And that's the way we want to be elevated, Right? Remember at the, the principal at the, at the feast? You know, well, let's see, I must have the seat right up here in the front row, right? Because of who I am. And the Lord says, no, take the last seat and let the master of the house bring you to the front seat. Don't presume to put yourself there. And John's an example. He must increase. I must decrease. He is the eternal one. I'm not. <laughs> okay. I think we can go into one more. Sorry? Five minutes. <laughs> so, um, verses 35 to 51, which is the rest of the gospel of, of John chapter 1. You notice in verse 35, again, the next day after the events of the previous day, and then verse 43, the following day, and then in chapter 2, verse 1, and the third day. So these are sequential days, see? But notice 
in verses 35 to 51, John the Baptist is almost not even mentioned. Also, you know, where did he go? <laughs> he went behind the curtain. They closed the curtain and brought out some other characters, right? Is there any significance to the three days? Of the, of the three days? Sure, sure. But we'll have to get to that when we get to chapter 2, verse 1. <laughs> I, would, I would say link it to the resurrection, three days, and which is one of the primary communications of the water to wine as well. But we, we'll get to that one. All right, so what's the subject of verses 35 to 51? This one's a little trickier, I'll admit. Because the obvious answer would be, well, it's the four disciples, right? It's got to be the four disciples. And that you're getting close to, to it there, but what is it that the four disciples say or do? They follow him, but why do they follow him? And how do they recognize it? No, this is the this is the how the thought flow we go to to get to this up. So that you're right, you're on the right track. So I'm backing you up. They followed him. Well, they followed him because they recognize they recognize him because and that's the subject. Because what? The Old Testament, the fulfillment of the Old Testament, right? Did you get that? They bring in the scriptures. <laughs> These men, even though they were fishermen, were students of the word, right? Come and see. They, 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 that, that's a phrase that keeps coming up. So we have found, verse 41, the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. Well, how did they know he was the Messiah? Well, Nathaniel, well, Philip found Nathaniel. Verse 45, and uh, there was, there's Nathaniel over there. <laughs> I think of Nathaniel. When we, we have found him of whom, whom Moses in the law, that would be the Pentateuch, and also the prophets. So you think of the law and the prophets and that's the whole Old Testament, right? That's a way of referring to the law and the prophets. So the whole Old Testament, we have found him, what they were, who they were writing about. And, and, and who does he say in verse 45? He's very specific. Jesus of Nazareth, and he adds, the son of Joseph. Now, he doesn't give us the birth account, does he? Luke gives us the birth account. John doesn't take the time to give us the birth account, Mary and Joseph. But Jesus of Nazareth, because Jesus was a common name in the first century. Joseph's a common name now. Jesus is a common name then. But Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, well, that now, that, now we know what family he's talking about. Now we know which Jesus he means. Now, is, is that... Hit you between the eyes like it hits me between the eyes? You you met Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, and you realized that this is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets? That's what he's saying. He said, we found him. <laughs> we kind of stumbled upon him, but who pointed them to him? John the Baptist again. Verse 7. Remember? Behold, there he goes. He probably pointed to him. The Lamb of God. There he, oh, really? And they were disciples of John, see? So they turned on John to go be disciples of the Lord. And, and John didn't have a problem with that. That's going to come up again in chapter 4. Okay. So the subject is that the disciple, these early four disciples, all of whom become apostles, I almost shouldn't say it for the sake of time, I don't think John the apostle is one of these. Always oh, Andrew and the other apostle, 
And for a long time, I did, it's Philip. It, the, the text makes it clear. Philip is the one that's with Andrew. But anyway, won't take the time to talk about that now. When John identifies himself, he's the one whom Jesus loved, right? And he does do that several, but not here. What does it say about the subject? I kind of already answered it, but. That the Old Testament prophecies concerning Messiah, I think that's the subject, are fulfilled in one very distinct person, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, is that not important? It's very important. Before you even get to Nicodemus, this is important. But look at the technique that God uses to reveal this. He could have put a big neon sign in the sky or arranged the stars in the zodiac in a certain way to say, Jesus, it's the son of Joseph, that's the Messiah. But he doesn't do it that way, does it? He does it through these four fishermen who are lumbering along, following John. John says, behold, the Lamb of God. And so he said, uh, we want to come. Where are you staying? Come and see. <laughs> By the way, that's still the technique in sharing the gospel with the lost. Just give them a little bit at a time. Don't unload the truck, <laughs> the whole wheelbarrow of theology on them the first visit. They can't get that. They can't process it. Invite them to come and see. Give them a little. The Lord gives them just a little bit at a time. They come into his dwelling place. Did they go and get somebody else? And they bring him along. By the way, another thing, several of the names of the Lord Jesus that stand out in this chapter one are pretty significant, but one that stands out to me is King. Nathaniel says, you are the son of God. You are the, is that all right to say that? I said it before. I think even in this pulpit and other pulpits too, some of the wonderful songs of our young people they like to sing about Jesus being king. And that's biblical. I'm with them on that. I think that's great. I remember an old brother years ago said, you know, he's not king yet. He's not king. He won't be king until he comes to reign in Jerusalem in the millennium. You remember that? You probably got some of that in the old days. He is king. He has all the regal right, authority, power, in awesome beauty of being a great king. And it sure gives me a lot of comfort and temptation in opposing the enemy of this world and in spiritual battle to remember that my Lord Jesus is a great king as well as a high priest. He's a king priest after the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews tells it. And Daniel says, you're the king? I <laughs> And Nathaniel apparently was meditating on this passage of Jacob, the angels descending and descending, Genesis 28. And he must have been sitting under this tree and, and, the, and he saw the Lord in the passage. And the Lord says, I saw you. And he says, oh, <laughs> it really hit him. Does the scripture hit your heart? And mine like that? I hope it does. If it doesn't, ask him. Ask the Lord to make himself real in your little time of reading the scripture, whenever that is. Ask him to make himself, and he will do that if you're sincere in that prayer. Just like he did for these brothers. It's, it, we haven't been saved to just a dead religion, have we? We've been saved to a relationship. And a relationship thrives on interaction, right? And we're interacting with the purest, loveliest, holiest, most beautiful person that's ever existed. 
And do we really realize it? Sometimes you know, we have to pinch ourselves. I'm talking to myself too. So we'll pick up. I was hoping to get all the way through chapter 2, verse 22 tonight. I was going to do five segments. Was that a little ambitious on the first session? Because the segments get a little harder and longer as we move on. But uh, it'll be profitable if you have time. If you don't have time to, as we say, do the homework. We're kind of playing with you on that. You know, that's in quotes. But if you don't have time to look at that portion of Scripture and think about subject compliments, still come tomorrow night, still come Saturday. I mean, you'll get a lot of benefit. And we're, we're going to be even hopefully more interactive tomorrow night in the Saturday sessions than tonight. Usually the first session, everybody's kind of holding back, you know, where's he going with this, you know, and that's okay. Because I do that too if a speaker goes down that road. But Yes, sir. At the Anderson, the wonderful, lovely home of Bob and Judy Anderson. That's right. They've opened up to us. All right. Well, thanks again. Uh, really, I, I can't tell you how much I look forward to being with you all and, and to seeing your faces and hearing about you and interacting with you. It's, it's such a privilege to know the Lord and to know each other. So, Heavenly Father, as we close out tonight, we pray you'll get each of us home safely. We ask for journeying mercies. We think of these various individuals we were thinking of in prayer earlier, and some of them in difficult parts of the world. It's a blessing to see Karen Halsback and, and Sid have them here tonight in the, in the many years that, that they served under sometimes difficulty and sometimes even danger. And they persevered, and they're great examples to us. They're great examples to the young people that are a blessing to have here. And many others, too. I don't. I mentioned them because I see Karen here, but there may be others here that I haven't seen and talked to. Um, thank you for bringing Brother Burbella through, through this. He, I know he wants to share about it. Uh, thank you for giving strength to Christian Eichley up there in Cleveland and pray the continued healing and encouragement for him think of the Staffords so many ones that uh, but each one of us Lord has a calling and I'm praying tonight every one of us in this fellowship not just the ones here in the room everyone in this fellowship would enter more into the realization of who they are in Christ and what he wants them to be and to do each one of us as you guide and lead, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. So we thank you again, and we thank you for Bob and Judy opening up their home. We look forward to being there, Lord willing, tomorrow night, uh, as we do give you thanks now in the Lord Jesus' name we pray.